Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Efrain, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. I want to start by thanking the supporters of our podcast, namely Daniel Blatt, Gregory Brown, and Joshua Brett. You too can support this podcast on Patreon at Shael Media on the site. By supporting us, you can help me divert the time I need to keep producing these podcasts and buy the research material I need for this and for the Israel Explained YouTube channel. So consider supporting the podcast. I'd appreciate it. Episode 34, Slavery and Racism. Now, before we get to that dramatic topic, let's recap a bit. In the last episode, we discussed the coming of the Israelites. And of course, we grant those people great importance because of where we know the history of the land of Israel is ultimately headed. But for now, they're just a bunch of simple peasants living on a God-forsaken hilltop somewhere. The masters of the land are still Egypt, and they continue to vie for mastery of Canaan against the other powers of the day, especially the Hittites. Soon their rule of this land would end, but in the meantime, right before the collapse, their 300-year rule over the colony would reach its zenith. We discussed their battles against Mitanni extensively, but ultimately Mitanni fell, but not to Egypt. It was the Hittites who threw the biggest and most destructive punch. And then the Assyrians picked up what was left. So this great nation, the Mitanni, which had invented the chainmail, had fallen. That left the Hittites as the main power contending with Egypt for supremacy. They kept Babylon away from the Egyptians and were ready to face the Egyptians head-on for supremacy in the Canaanite lands. So the same old areas where Mitanni had once fought were now under Hittite domination. Familiar cities like Kadesh and Tunip were once again battlegrounds. Now, you might remember from previous episodes that Kadesh had traditional connections to Mitanni, but it was less enthusiastic about their new masters. You see, like the Egyptians, the Hittites came from somewhere else. They came from Anatolia in what's today Turkey. So there was less loyalty there. That's why Kadesh and other cities often switched sides and played a very complex political game. In general, it was hard for the Hittites to play a dominant role in Lebanon and Syria the same way Mitanni did, because they were locals. Their capital, Hattusa, was located in what's today the Korum province in the Black Sea region of modern Turkey. That meant that both Egypt and the Hittites were 13,000 miles from each other, and in the logistical capital capacity of the time, that made a knockout blow incredibly difficult and made it easy for local Canaanite lords, especially in Lebanon and Syria, far less in Canaan, Canaan itself, to maneuver between the powers. Now, the same logistical weakness that prevented the Hittites and the Egyptians from wielding their power as effectively as they could also allowed bands of marauders and nomads to emerge in the territory nominally controlled by the empires, and we've talked about some of these. 
That was also helped by the lack of an assertive Egyptian foreign policy, following the death of the unmatched expansionist and general Thutmose III. The most spectacular emergence of these kind of marauders was the Apiru kingdom in Lebanon. Later, the Shasu, possibly the ancestors of the Israelites and related to the Apiru, also took advantage of it. The chaos that ensued due to the weakness was changed to some extent with the rise of Seti I in 1323 BCE in Egypt. As a young pharaoh, he received a disturbing report. It read, quote, Their chiefs are gathered together in one place, taking their stands on the hills of Canaan. They have begun to go wild, all slaying their fellow. They do not give a thought to the laws of the palace, end quote. The palace in question here, of course, is that of the local Egyptian governor. So not heeding the palace meant not heeding the pharaoh. Not heeding the pharaoh meant not heeding the gods, and not heeding the gods meant you had to be punished. So Seti advanced on the Aperu and easily defeated them. He followed in Thutmose III's footsteps and attacked Kadesh, that eternal pain in the Egyptian behind. But Seti died before he could take the city, and the city reverted to allying with the Hittites. It was a typically futile campaign, soon wiped out by the inability of the Egyptians to assert their dominance so far from home. Seti died in 1279 BCE and was succeeded by Ramses II, or Ramses II. In 1301, the Samburu, a nomadic kingdom in Lebanon, rebelled against the Hittites and offered an alliance to Ramses. He jumped at the chance to press an advantage against his enemies. What came next was the most documented battle of the era. In fact, there wouldn't be anything with this much evidence in the military uh, side of things until the Battle of Marathon in classical Greece. So we have some great amount of detail from this confrontation. The Egyptian enemy was camped on the east bank of the Orontes River when their sentries discovered two Bedouins not far from the camp. After interrogating them, the two said that the Hittites are still in Aleppo and scared to march on Kadesh. Ramses was convinced and marched on Kadesh, but oh, it had been a trap. Ramses, will you never learn? The Hittites were not hiding scared, but were actually camped on the western side of the city. When the Egyptians advanced, a vulnerable section of the line was ambushed by enemy chariots. One of the four invading divisions was decimated on the spot. The Egyptian forces then retreated to the camp where Ramses was, and soon they were surrounded by those darn Hittites. Now it sounds like Ramses was toast, right? But he organized a charge into the midst of the enemy to try and break out. Some of the Hittite forces even fell back into the river. That caused enough trouble that it took time, uh, enough time until one of the Egyptian divisions had avoided the ambush and returned to help. Muatalis, the Hittite king, now hesitated. He still needed to send his reserve force in, but he didn't. That allowed the Egyptians time to regroup. As more of the soldiers of Ramses returned to the camp, they bolstered the line and beat off the enemy chariots. Now, 
this wasn't really a victory for Egypt. Sure, the force survived against all odds, but there was no way the bruised and battered army could now take Kadesh. I mean, even when the Egyptian army was at full force, they never seemed to be able to take Kadesh. The allied king of the Amuru, Benteshina, was taken captive by the Hittites. Every Canaanite leader noted what happened and the failure of Egyptian arms. As Redford explained, quote, Headmen of Canaanite town, vassals of Egypt, were impressed by what they divined as an inherent weakness in Pharaoh's forces, namely poor intelligence and a tendency to panic. Rebellion was possible. Egypt could be beaten, end quote. Soon, all of Canaan was in open revolt. That's how the Middle East was then, and that's how the Middle East still is today. If you show weakness, everyone pounces. We already saw in the Battle of Kadesh that Ramses was tough. Sure, he didn't know how to keep out of trouble, but when he got into it, he fought like hell to get out of it. Three years after the defeat in Kadesh in 1271 BCE, the Egyptian army marched back into Canaan to kick ass and take names. They raided and destroyed Migdol, Bet-Anat, Merom, Shalem, and other cities. Soon, Egypt was pushing back into Lebanon and the Hittite sphere of influence. After some bad breaks, luck was finally with Ramses. His hated rival, Muatalis, had died. His son and uncle ended up in one of those epic battles over the crown that typified succession in a monarchy. The two were engaged for warfare for 15 years, though uncle Urhi Teshuk came out on top. So that was a civil war. But if that wasn't enough to rock the Hittites, they now faced a new threat. You see, Mitanni had collapsed, thanks mainly to Hittite meddling. And though Urhi Teshuk had tried to prop up Mitanni's successor cities there, they could not stand up to the new rising power from the east. Yes, my friends, I am talking about Assyria. Who are these folks? Well, Ashur is an ancient city-state located on the western bank of the Tigris River, north of the confluence with one of its tributaries, the Little Zab, which we've mentioned before. By the 13th century BCE, it had begun to expand as Mitanni contracted. By this time, they were one of the two most powerful entities in Mesopotamia, right alongside Babylon. So the Hittites found themselves at war with Assyria, the rising power, and Egypt, the most established power. That's not a good position to be in. So they did what anyone would do in this situation, and allied with Babylon. In a refrain that is all too familiar through the ages, Hattusilis wrote, quote, With an enemy who is our common foe, verily we will be hostile. And with our common friends, verily we are at peace. After the king of Egypt and I became angry with each other, I wrote to the king of Babylon, saying, If the troops of the king of Egypt come, I will go with thee, and I will come amid soldiers and chariots. End quote. So the Hittites moved to secure their western and southern borders. They did so by offering peace to Egypt. They signed a treaty that was ratified. And the treaty wasn't just a peace agreement. It also called for mutual assistance. Ramses even promised to help the son of Urhi Teshup take over if there was a succession challenge during his reign. 
Of course, that was not a mutual agreement. Why? Because the Egyptians would never dream of allowing dirty foreigners to intervene in their succession process. One copy of the treaty was taken to the Temple of Re in Heliopolis. Meanwhile, the other went to Kate, to the temple of the sun goddess Arena. The Egyptian queen Nefertiti wrote to the Hittite queen, quote, Ray and the weather god shall uphold the treaty, and Ray will make it a prosperous peace, and he shall make excellent the brotherhood between the great king, the king of Egypt, and the great king, the king of Kate, this brother forever and ever, end quote. And Kate, of course, is the name the Egyptians used for the Hittites, and Nefertiti is the name of one of Miles Davis's greatest albums, just so you know. The seemingly endless war had come to an end, and like so many conflicts, it seemed pointless in retrospect. I mean, what do these wars even mean in the long term? Only a few important cities had changed hands. The natural spheres of influence had been restored. It's almost as if no war was needed. Something to think about. After the peace agreement between Egypt and the Hittites was signed, the two kept the peace religiously and literally religiously, if we think of the peace treaty. You see, there was no deep animosity between the two. They were far away from each other. They hadn't had a long history of fighting before. It was just a question of territory. And the wars had shown very clearly what each could hold and what they could not. And the rising power of Assyria meant that the two were concerned about not being able to hold anything at all. Now that it was clear that Canaan was Egyptian territory and Egyptian territory alone, the new kingdom moved to strengthen its hold there. Now, at this point, Egypt had two colonies, the land of Israel and Nubia, which is located in modern Sudan. Egypt had destroyed the centralized kingdom in Nubia and was constantly tampering with their tribal leadership and structure. In Canaan, they were far less heavy-handed, partially because there had never been a centralized kingdom there and partially because they hadn't threatened Egypt in a very long time, since the days of the Hyksos. Just rival city-states, and that's how Egypt liked it. The structure there allowed the pharaohs to play divide and conquer, keep the area weak, keep the locals pacified while enriching the local elites, right? So that's how Egypt kept the Canaanite cities in line. It's the same way every colonial empire ever would do. The carrot and stick system. Now, the imperial stick is obvious. Egypt kept an increasingly sizable standing army and went on campaigns to punish anyone who dared rebel against them, often by burning cities to the ground. You know, that kind of subtle stuff. But the carrot was just as important, maybe even more important. Rather than replace the Canaanite elites, Egypt co-opted them and gave them a share in the profits of their trade routes. The Egyptian army also provided security the kind of security that allowed trade to blossom. Meanwhile, the pharaoh also kept loyal colonial elites in power. It was the kind of deal the upper classes would make for millennia, and often still make today. With the colonial elites at the top, Canaanite society became increasingly stratified. Now, Canaanite society had never been particularly egalitarian, but kind of like with globalization in modern society, the Gaps between the haves and the have-nots became starker as Egyptian power and influence became greater. At the top in Canaanite society were those who ruled, the Mariano or chariot nobility, a structure that 
had spread from the Mitanni into Canaanite society. Beneath them, a middle class had developed. From Egyptian reliefs, we know what they wore. The classic Canaanite elite costume had been plain kilts of leather or linen for generations, and in the winter, a sheepskin to cover that. It was obtained through trade, no doubt, because uh, they weren't the ones who oversaw sheep herding. The elites were the agricultural ones, so they talked to the Apiru, uh, got sheepskins from there. As trade increased and they became more affluent, tighter-fitting white gowns with fringes of blue or red stretched from their necks to their calves with tight sleeves up to the wrist. Heads were shaved and often adorned with a skull cap, and men sported a shaped beard. You see, these new costumes were influenced by Babylonian fashions, which supplanted the more straightforward and old-fashioned um, woolly Canaanite approach. Indeed, despite Egyptian influence politically and culturally, the Hurrian and Babylonian influences were often stronger, and we see that in the case of fashion. The middle class was made up of artisans. Successful ones were all employed by the palace and the elites. In this period, Canaan was best known for its metal workers, who were famed for the quality of their craftsmanship in Egypt. Then, the vast majority of society were farmers. The nameless hordes on whose backs the imperial success and the wealth of colonial elites depended. You see, the way colonialism works is that the imperial power creates a commonality of interest with the affluent locals at the expense of people with low incomes. They then join forces to oppress the lower classes. Classic exploitation stuff. And the people who lived short, miserable, poverty-stricken lives at the bottom were the farmers. But not everyone lived within the law, and that makes sense because the law was pretty oppressive. Who lived outside? Well, the nomads, like the Apiru, who lived on the fringes of this society. And as we saw in the previous episode, they weren't shunned. They worshipped in the same altars and shrines. They also traded with the city-states. As pastoralists, they produced different wares and could trade wool for grain. And sure, herding was the backbone of their economy. But we know from the census lists of the time, they had all sorts of occupations. Some were charioteers. Some were priests, some were lower-level artisans, some were even entertainers. They developed their societies in an outlook on life antithetical to the orderly, trade-oriented elites controlling Canaan. And because they had a wide variety of um, jobs that they had, we think that a lot of them were not only members of pastoralist tribes, but also people who dropped out of Canaanite society took the skills that they had there. So these are people living at the fringes, rebelling against a society that was increasingly repressive and exploitative. Now, this society was generally left intact by Egypt. However, the independence of the Canaanite city-states was snuffed out, especially after the peace agreement with the Hittites. That's particularly noticeable in Chatzor, and in those two traditional pains in the ass for Egyptian dominance, Kadesh and Tunip, their leaders had to take an oath and were reduced to the status of Pharaoh's towns. Leaders who did not suit Egyptian interests were replaced. Rebellions were br brutally repressed. 
Canaan was now an Egyptian colony, and anyone who tried to stand up to them was exterminated. But snuffing out all resistance isn't that easy. It involves bringing a lot of Egyptian nationals there to increase control. Not just the military, but also bureaucrats, and trade officials, and all that stuff. Now, this was actually a problem from a cultural perspective. You see, the Egyptians considered themselves superior to the Canaanites and everyone else. Here's a great example. An Egyptian father wrote to his son, quote, I provided your needs in all things, which others might only hope for. Yet you are now on the journey of the swallow and its young. You have reached the delta on a long circuit and have conforted, consorted sorry, with the Asiatics, having eaten bread mixed with your blood. You have lost your wits. End quote. Yet, despite this kind of sense that the Asiatics were um, wild animals, the Egyptians did not run a genocidal policy. They had to coexist with their neighbors while looking down on them. Remember, the best way that they could find to control Canaan was to exploit the locals rather than destroy them. Meanwhile, the Canaanites also found themselves in Egypt. We've already talked about the children of the kings who were sent as glorified hostages until they were ready to take over their own cities. And that's how they learned Egyptian culture, and that helped a lot. But much more common than those kings was slavery. Canaanites became enslaved people in Egypt very often in one of three ways. They could be bought at the market, and they could be um, self-surrendering, or cities could send them as tribute, or they could be taken in war. So I guess that's actually four ways. It's essential to put the slavery of that time in context. Today, we view that institution as morally horrifying, and rightfully so. However, the existence of slavery and its role in society just wasn't really questioned in those days, or at least we see no direct evidence of that. Instead, all known rules prescribe the proper treatment of enslaved people and how to determine ownership. That includes everything from the laws of Hammurabi to those of the Israelites, as expounded upon in detail in Leviticus 25. And Leviticus 25 is interesting. It has two sets of rules, one for enslaved Israelites and the other for enslaved Canaanites, showing that while it was permissible to enslave your own people, you kind of had to treat them a little bit better than dirty foreigners. And that was not exception. Um, every nation at that time um, had slaves that were locals and slaves that were foreigners, and they usually had different sets of rules. Um, people were a little bit more uncomfortable keeping slaves from their own society, but did it all the time. So, as I said, slavery was very normal in this era, but I think there's still discomfort with it, which is why there's so many rules about it and all these reservations about it in the rules. After all, the Tanakh seeks to justify it. Uh, you can only take an Israelite into slavery if they fall into extreme poverty. In that case, they could sell themselves into slavery, a practice that many people in the ancient world uh, went for in order to alleviate difficult financial situations. It may seem pretty weird to us to sell yourself into slavery. It's not something that um, I often consider. But in times of hunger and poverty, especially when the um, agricultural workers 
have such difficult lives. Isn't it better to be an enslaved person in a wealthy household than die of starvation in the street? And in other, though, related cases, Israelites were demoted to slavery because they were unable to pay their debts. Um, so they may not have wanted to be slaves, but because they owed so much money, either to the king or to someone specific or in general, they were becoming slaves because they couldn't sustain themselves and they would be slaves in order to pay off their debts. So what we see in Leviticus is you can only take slaves of your own people in extreme cases. Now, as for the Canaanites, the Israelites pointed to a theological explanation for why they could take Canaanites as slaves and treat them worse than the Israelites. In the book of Genesis, Noah curses his son Ham to a destiny wherein all his progeny are doomed to slavery. According to Israelite and later Talmud tradition, the descendants of Ham were the Canaanites. Therefore, using them as slaves was totally permissible. And that was later widened to other non-Canaanite peoples in the name of the cursing of Ham. And interestingly enough, enslavers in the United States also used this construct, determining that Africans were all descendants of Ham based on absolutely no evidence aside from convenience. Now, the Egyptians, of course, had more enslaved people than the Israelites ever did, not necessarily because of their ideology, but rather due to their immense geopolitical power. After all, the primary way to obtain enslaved people was to win them in battle, and also to get them as tribute from cities. And they did much of that in the late Bronze Age, far more than the Israelites ever would. In Egypt, there were three categories of enslaved people. People were held in chattel slavery, bonded labor, and forced labor. Bonded labor were temporary slaves brought in to finish a public works project, like, say, the pyramids. The main workforce on these uh, massive tombs was well-paid, and they were a free class of laborers who took on the risks willfully in exchange for pretty good life conditions. We find a lot of good food and beer uh, over there. And in exchange for the fact they had massive risk, they often died in accidents and broke their legs. Maybe a bit like football players are willing to take massive risks for glory uh, and being treated well. Uh, they could be, however, supplemented by slave laborers who were sometimes released after and were not treated as well. Uh, they were, of course, only released if they survived the grueling process of building pyramids and other public works, which was not uh, guaranteed. Um, there was also another category of slaves that is mysterious, um, the Shabti. The Shabti were people who traded their freedom for a place in the afterlife. They bonded themselves to masters and were buried with them. They appeared to have voluntarily given up their freedom for a spiritual reward, and at least some of them were of Canaanite origin. Indeed, a large amount of all the groups that we just mentioned were Canaanite. In our heads, as modern people, it's hard to separate race from slavery. And in the Egyptian case, the dynamic between race and slavery was very different, but it was certainly there. You see, most slaves in Egypt were from Nubia, 
and the people in Nubia were of very dark skin. We know that not only because of the people who live there now, but also because of what they look like in Egyptian reliefs, which always stress the dark skin of Nubians. But it doesn't appear race was a significant driver here, at least initially. Throughout most of Egyptian history, they were the main foreign enemy, so Egypt was constantly at war with them. But ultimately, you can't really separate race issues from slavery. When one race is continually sold into slavery for whatever reason, and the other is often their master, some sense of ethnic superiority does arise. And the Egyptians tended to see everyone else as inferior in general, as do most people, but the Egyptians, because they had power for so long, really excel the sense of superiority towards other people. And the Egyptians not only saw the Nubians as naturally inclined to be slaves, but they saw the same as about the Canaanites. One inscription says, quote, The Asiatics are weak, doomed ones, abominated by Ray. Their only destiny is to become serfs of his majesty, end quote. So doubtless there was some of what we today would call racism behind the Egyptians' attitude towards the Canaanites. But it was nothing like the slavery in the United States that we associate with this heinous institution. Because Canaanites, Nubians, um, could often be esteemed members of society and intermarried. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that. Now, just like the Israelites, poor Egyptians also sold themselves into slavery when economic times were bad. Indeed, this seems to have been the case in just about every culture. But one rule I really like is that corrupt royal officials could also be deprived of their freedom and become slaves, often to the pharaoh, which makes sense. You tried to skim money off me? Well, now I own you. You can think of worse ways to fight corruption. Now, getting back to the Canaanites, this might not sound politically correct, but there is reason to believe that many were happier in Egypt. Redford explained, once they got to Egypt, there was no chance to escape. Not that they would always want to, at least there was food in Egypt, end quote. But slavery definitely had its downside for Canaanites and for everyone else. You would be branded with the name of the god you were designated to serve. Just about always, whether you were serving a temple or serving a master, there was a god you were assigned to. Then you would be placed in a temple, palace, or government department. You see, the enslaved were generally the property of the state. Typical jobs they took were weaving clothes or stomping grapes into wine. But there was scope for promotion. For example, one Canaanite slave became the supervisor of all royal construction work throughout Egypt, making him one of the most powerful men in the country. Sometimes entire communities were transplanted to Egypt because the Egyptians were impressed with their work ethic. For example, there are fields of Hittites that were brought into Egypt where farmers from that community were taken to do their work for Egypt. The military had Canaanite units, especially the folks from Gezer, who were known for their excellent fighting and shooting skills. That continued when Egypt was invaded by the Sea People. Ramses II was so impressed by one of the groups involved, the Shardana, that he made their best fighters his elite guards. And often uh, pharaohs and later Roman emperors and others 
preferred to have foreign soldiers who were completely dependent on them so that they would be impervious to plots to kill them by locals, or at least they hoped they were being impervious. Now, the Canaanite slaves in Egypt would adopt an Egyptian name, um, often without abandoning their born moniker to fit in. So it might uh, say, for example, in the records, Meritamun, the beloved of Amun, for example, also known as Nikmat, which is a Canaanite name. In other cases, they abandoned their Canaanite names completely and had a name signifying the king who employed them. For example, Ramses M. Perse, which translates into Ramses in the house of Ray. That tells you which pharaoh he worked for and under where he worked. Here's a quote showing you how beloved enslaved people could be. One Egyptian owner gave the following instructions regarding one of his slaves. I captured him myself when I was following the ruler on the campaign. He is not to be beaten, nor is he to be turned away from any door of the palace. I have given my sister's daughter to him as a wife. She shall have a share in my inheritance, just like my wife and my sister. End quote. And indeed, marriages between Canaanites and Egyptians were pretty standard, and even enslaved people could marry into rich families under certain circumstances. And there's an increasing tendency to accept intermarriage that's also reflected in Egyptian literature. In early stories, before the empire in Canaan had been fully established, we have one story where the traveler from the Nile goes on adventures and spends most of his days missing home and his local family. And there are several examples that are similar. But in stories from this era, in the late Nur Kingdom and in the late uh, Bronze Age, so around uh, 1300, um, the hero often loves the foreign lands that he moves to and settles with a Canaanite woman. There was no longer any cultural taboo, and it was seen as kind of exciting to marry an exotic Asiatic uh, woman. So here's an example. In one story, the hero wins a contest to marry the daughter of the king of Naharim, that old Mitanni stronghold. She was confined to a tower with a single window, an image that appears often in Canaanite myth and later on appears in things like Rapunzel, for example. The wife of the Egyptian is a hero herself and saves his life from a snake. In another tale, the Egyptian hero lives in Lebanon with a beautiful daughter of the gods and has to defeat Yam, the Canaanite sea god who lusts after her. We know that story from Ugarit, since they tell a similar one. And that means we see cultural influence and adaptation of the same tales. Meanwhile, another story deals with the active sex life of our beloved Canaanite goddess, Anat, who always did get around. But the most important literary influence of the Canaanites on Egypt was language. Linguists have identified hundreds of Levantine words that pop up increasingly in Egyptian texts. Nearly a quarter of these words directly relate to the military, explaining where these two cultures often met. Egypt adopted many methods from the Canaanites, such as chariots and chainmail, and the battering ram they took from them as well, as the Canaanites were often more advanced in, uh, in regard to warfare. 
Another 27% of the work the Egyptians adopted are related to materials the Egyptians traded for with the Canaanites, like, say, wood, furniture, minerals. Also, many words they used for containers were taken from Levantine languages, since so much trade came in Levantine packaging. And despite the Egyptians' sense of superiority, their religions did not differentiate between races, at least in theory. So, for example, according to one text, the god Atum made, quote, the people and their natures different, made their colors distinct, end quote. So the differences between races were made by the gods, but not because they believed one was superior to the other. And there was another capacity wherein Canaanites visited Egypt often, to trade. Indeed, they became so ubiquitous in their commercial activity that the term doing business in Syrian languages was soon used as a shorthand for haggling, because Canaanites were far more aggressive than the locals in that art form. And as anyone who's visited the state of Israel today knows, some things don't change. And as the two cultures got closer and had more affinity, we start to see a lot of syncretism emerge in both places. What's that? The practice of combining different beliefs and various schools of thought into one religion or the worship of a specific god based on different practices. It involves the merging or assimilating of several originally discrete traditions into one faith. And Egypt had long interacted with other religions, but traditionally they'd done it from a position of superiority, and I mean theological superiority. For example, Hatshepsut is wearing the symbol of other gods in a manner that suggests that she subsumes them. The Egyptian gods were put above foreign ones, especially those of culture they had conquered, like the Canaanites. The Canaanite god Baal, a prominent villain in the Tanakh, was also familiar to the Egyptians from the Hyksos area. And over the years, he became so familiar that they seemed to have forgotten he wasn't one of theirs. He was adopted by the Egyptians into their pantheon, alongside Astarte and the podcast's favorite Canaanite goddess, Anat. In her Egyptian incarnation, Anat was the Egyptian uh, daughter of the sun god Ray. We find artifacts dedicated to all three in purely Egyptian households throughout the country. Meanwhile, the military loved Baal and Astarte for their military qualities and brandished their symbols as their own. They were often more popular in the military than Egyptian gods, which makes sense. Uh, the Canaanites were very warlike, and the Egyptian army spent a lot of time in Canaan and fighting Canaanites. So the influence was profound. So the cultural impact of the Canaanites was massive, not only in Egypt, but elsewhere, even among their cousins, the Israelites. But soon, the massive invasion of the Sea Peoples would wipe them away. Now, today we mostly remember the Canaanites negatively, due to the view that appeared in the Tanakh. But without their tremendous contribution to culture over thousands of years, the region would not have developed as it did. They have formed the bedrock for all cultures in the land of Israel. The Egyptian rule of Canaan would also soon be a thing of the past. Egypt had long had a presence in Egypt, but from Thutmose III's victory in the Battle of Megiddo uh, in 1458 BCE and on, Egypt was a hegemonic power, turning Canaan inch by inch into the first actual colony in history. 
I like this quote from an article by Roger Atwood. Quote, the Egyptians built fortresses, mansions, and agricultural estates from Gaza to the Galilee, taking Canaan's finest products, copper from Dead Sea mines, cedar from Lebanon, olive oil and wine from the Mediterranean coast, along with untold numbers of enslaved people and concubines, and sending them over land across the Mediterranean and Red Seas to Egypt to please its elites, end quote. It was an exploitative structure designed to enrich Egypt, and it maintained control in Canaan by enriching everyone relevant to maintaining power. But the arrival of the Sea Peoples would overthrow the social order benefiting those two groups forever. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry me email or a nice one or questions at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And also, check out Israel Explained YouTube. See you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time. <laughs>